Dwayne wrote the song, but I wrote a part of it too, and they didn't give me credit for it. They said I didn't write on it, but my first ever phone, my mom is the type of mother who she don't believe in, you know, putting bills in her name. So she's like, you have to have your own phone in your name. So that was my first phone, and that's my phone number, 632-2135. So that was a real number. <laughs> that's my first number ever to my first number in my, in my, in my house. I get a kick out of doing this podcast on a day like today because it's another opportunity for me to go back in time to remember when. The artist that is my guest today, man, I can't tell you how many homecoming slow dances I danced to his music because he has made some of the greatest love songs of all time as a part of a legendary group and as a solo artist. He's also one of the best producers on earth. Not earth, but earth with an F. Anyway, my guest today on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So pleased to welcome him. One of Oakland's own town business, Mr. Raphael Sadiq. So what happens when you get old is that time starts to move really fast and things kind of become a blur. Um, and so I was stunned to learn that my guest on today's episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered had not released a solo album in eight years. Um, I guess I'm stunned, uh, Raphael Sadiq, because it feels like you're everywhere. You know, because obviously the, with the work you're doing for Insecure, the movies you scored, it's like I, I feel like I constantly hear your name. So for me to realize that you as a solo artist had not actually put something out in that long, it was just kind of baffling. And then I thought... Well, why the hell did it take you so long to, to put yeah. out a solo project? I guess it took me so long because, you know, life, you know, you, you know, I lost my dad two years ago um, and my mother's getting older. You know, you start seeing everybody a little different, you know, be at home. And then I started, like you said, I was scoring a couple of TV shows here and there and I produced Solange records. So I've been in there, but not making a record and always feel if, if I'm making music, it always feels like it's I'm making music for me and everybody else. So it doesn't matter if it's my record or somebody else's record, I guess. Then when it was my record, it's a lot more pressure. You think you have more pressure doing your own record than when you produce something? Why yes. do you feel like you have more pressure? There's more pressure on you. I, I think I'm, I'm a little harder on myself and other people. I, I'm for, I've been fortunate to work with people who have a vision sort of and I can sort of sit with them and not be a producer and say, okay, I'm not a producer. I'm a part of the band. And it's easier that way because I come from, you know, Tony, 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 Lucy Pearl. So I've always been in bands. It's easier to produce in a band because once we say it's right, it's right. But when it's me, it's just you. And, you know, it's all you. Every record, every song, you got to hear your voice. Yeah, you brought up your father, and I want to talk about him in a minute, but I want to ask you about the the project, Jimmy Lee, coming out in August, correct? August 23rd. Yeah, yeah it's named after your brother. This is an extremely personal album because um, it's about his addiction, of course, right? yeah. Um, what made you want to make something that personal and put it out there for all of us to consume? Yeah, my brother Jimmy, I just, like, life goes really fast, and, you know, like I said, I was uh, sort of the mistake child. You know, I think we were maybe like maybe 15 or some 12, 13 years apart. And he was already an addict when I was 
born. So I only know him as an addict. So it was pretty much normal for me. And he was funny. He was outgoing. You know, he always dropped me off like a dog or two into my backyard. And my mother would take the dog, put the dog in the car, the dog in the trunk, me in the backseat, go to a park, pull the dog out, throw the dog out in the grass and leave. And I'm in the back window looking at my dog like, that is really jacked up, mom. So, but Jimmy was always doing something like good, but he definitely was the, you know, like that, uh, Samuel Jackson character in one of the Spikes movie that would come steal the TV, yeah. steal this, do that. But when you see my mom stole the TV, yeah, yeah. But when I see him, he just like you know, I'm like, but you, he like you stole Pop's stepdad's gun. He's like, but I don't like him. I said, but you stole my piggy bank. He said, I was gonna bring it back. Nah, whatever. But he was just a funny guy, and it just, and everybody in the family really loved him. And I just wanted to show like the love for people who have are addicted to something like that. Like you. Shouldn't look down on them, and I, so this record is not really a down a down record. It's really an uplifting record. You could dance to it, sing to it, and a lot of different things. But I just wanted to uplift him and actually put his name on a project so people could hashtag you know hashtag Jamie Lee. Like you might have a Jamie Lee in your life, but you know just his life was uh, very important to me. I had sort of two Jimmy Leaves in my life because my 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 parents are both recovering addicts. Okay. So when I read the backstory about why you decided to do this and put this out, um, and even in, re- in listening to some of the interviews you've done about it, um, you bring a certain amount of levity to it. Like you talk about the funny stories and mm-hmm. kind of the lighter moments, even as someone was like battling addiction. Um, I guess I'm I'm really curious as to how are you able to compartmentalize that way and not, I mean, that's not to say, I don't know you well enough to know that you're, you might be sitting around thinking about the, the bad times or whatever, but it seems like whenever you talk about him um, and even your dad, who I know recently passed, you always are looking at the lighter and brighter moments. Where does that sort of come from? I guess um, when, you, when you live around things that are really dark, supposed to be dark, and I never really saw the darkness. I saw the darkness with my parents and my parents, you know, are just, you know, when, Jimmy breaking the house and my mother just looks at her, her husband, which is not her kid. So, but she still loved her kid when my stepfather hated him. And I said, man, you, then you learn like a mother just going to love her, her, her kids no matter what they do. Um, and as far as my dad, when I lost my dad, he, he raised me so well. He did a great job when, you know, sometimes dad's not around. My dad was, you know, he was there every step, you know, every step of the way. And I'm able to like make light of it because Jimmy was just the type of guy, like if, he saw you in the street and tried to, you bought a poster and it cost $10 a poster or something. He'll say, you know, Chanel, um, can you loan me $10? You say, I just spent my last 20 on this poster. He's like, well, you got to put one back and give me $10. <laughs> you know, he was just, I would hear all these stories. Like if he seen my friends, he was like, you know my brother, Raphael, right? That's my brother. Give me $20 and just tell him, you know. You gave it to him. He would do stuff like that, just really like funny stuff. And um, so I mean, people you run into on the street, like, hey man, you you owe me yeah, twenty dollars. Like, I've never met at you. At least five people. And <laughs> Jimmy was just that type of guy, you know, who just um, and then I have family members who just hated him, would just treat him like really bad. And I never did that. I would have to tell them like, hey man, he's not a bad guy. He just really got stuck on a chemical that he didn't know that was going to take over his complete life. You know, and, and I just really, the funny thing, not to be funny, but for real, I was like, for real, for real, I started eating like these chocolate chip cookies and, and I, one day I just couldn't stop. And I'm like, why can't I stop eating like chocolate croissants and coffee? And I was trying to stop and I couldn't stop. And then I started thinking about him. Like we told him to stop. And if you told me to stop really eating some like chocolate chip cookies, it'd be, it'd be a problem. So what did you, 
what do you think you learned from your brother? I definitely had a lot of examples. I had another, another brother, Desmond. Desmond, um, he, he he had an addiction to drugs and he couldn't break it, so he took his life with a double barrel shotgun. My other brother was actually into drugs and somebody killed him. My sister's boyfriend did when I was seven. And then I had another sister who was pretty much strung out her whole life. And a lot of friends that are around me right now today, you know, my best friend is Brian Grant, who's play play hoop. And Brian is uh, young Parkinson's and, you know, he has a foundation I'm I'm a part of helping him. And then he has an opioid, you know, um, addiction. And I've been around him since, you know, since Sacramento Kings, his rookie year from Athlete Xavier. And his God kids are like my kids. So I've been through with him when he would, you know, binge and go through stuff and, and go off. And the kids, are, you know, I'll talk to my God kids and I'll have to call him and then he will apologize and then it'll happen again. And so he called me when he heard the record. Some of the record is about him, the song called King's Fall. So it says Jimmy Lee, but it's about all the darkness that I've seen. So he called me once he heard the record and said, hey, man, you can keep it 100 with people about my addiction because I want people to know. Hmm. So so because um, I think with uh, with Brian in particular, I mean, that was sort of the, the last time he was like really in the news when I think people found out about the Parkinson's disease. And he played, for those who don't know, played many years with the uh, Trailblazers, correct? Trailblazers, yeah. Yeah, and so... And the Heat. And the Heat, yep. Um, so as you're somebody who, you know, is surrounded by people who have these addictions, does that take a, a toll on, on you to... Um, sometimes have to step in or just even witnessing that from people you love. I guess it did at some point. I, I just noticed and when I was writing this music, I said, I guess it had to come out because I've been around it. I've been sort of uh, the protector and the person, you know, voice of reason and the person that also never tried to make anybody feel guilty about it. Like me and Brian are like really cool. I said, bro, you never have to like feel embarrassed about anything. I grew up around it. So you never have to feel embarrassed. You know, he said, all right, cool. And I guess I've always been able to look at it a different way. I don't know where it came from, but I was able to take it on and deal with it in, in a different light. So what, what kind of shape is Brian in now? How's he doing? Brian is good right now. He's good. He's, um, you know, he got a, he got a son. He got, a, he got eight kids. But he, <laughs> well, one of his sons plays. Uh, Jaden is my godson. He's playing Oregon State. He's playing the wide receiver. He's He's killing it. Um, he's doing good. The kids are good. He's good. He's he's laughing. He's really into uh, the internet, the group. He loves the internet. He's He loves Sid. He's always like, man, if Sid ever come to the studio, you got to call me. So I don't want to be like the full out groupie, but I love the music. And so he's good. Yeah. Um, you come from a really big family, correct? Mm -hmm. Like how many? 14? 14. 14? Yeah, well, my dad had like, you know, eight kids before. Right. My dad told me I was a mistake child. You know, he said, boy, you were a mistake, boy, but you're a good one, but you were a mistake. I told your mom, I gave your mom 300 bucks and said, you know, he didn't say, oh, get rid of them, but he did. He said, I he gave applied. That's what he, he meant. applied, you know. <laughs> and my mom said she took like the money and she was waiting, sitting there um, at the doctor's office. And she said it took too long. So she just went next door to Safeway. And spent the money. <laughs> you ever thank your mom? Like, man, I'm so glad. Yeah, I was like, really, mom? I wouldn't have to pay these taxes if you went to Safeway. You should just went. You should just stay there. This is like, this might be worse. But then we wouldn't get treated to all this wonderful music and your somebody creativity. Somebody would have made it. The spirit would have came over somebody. So uh, in the 14, where do you where do you fall? Exactly? I'm the baby boy. Mm. So what I mean, when you were growing up, like how many people? Like, how many of your siblings were you growing up with? Pretty much, uh, 
I had one sister still in the house, and she was on her way to uh, Sonoma State. Everybody was pretty much gone out of the house. And then my other brothers was living maybe like 15 blocks away. They were still in the house, but with their mom. So they would come pick me up and take me to that place. And I love staying over there, which that's my brother, Dwayne, who I was in the, in the Tonys with. So I had, I think it was two in their house and I was the only one in my house. So everybody was pretty much gone. So you, um, you grew up in Oakland uh, where you were coming to age in Oakland. This was like what, mid seventies, late seventies, yeah. um, mm -hmm. obviously into the eighties. So what was Oakland like back then? What was the neighborhood like? It's beautiful. A real neighborhood. You know, my mom was in the baseball. So we see Oakland Athletics all the time. Um, the Raiders and just, I mean, what I remember the most is being in the Raiders uh, at Oakland at a, at a baseball game, listening to uh, uh, Golden Lady and like Reggie Jackson would be warming up. They would just, you know, throwing balls around. And that's a great memory for me being at the baseball park. But the neighborhood was just festive with love, music food um you know we didn't have enough activities to keep us out of like you know all the the bad things that were going on but other than that i thought it was a very i call it a very beautiful dark place um so at what point did music kind of enter into your life music entered my life maybe at seven i was on it since the i heard bb king playing the thrill is gone in the house my mom played that record and I heard that record and I think from that time they would go fishing a lot so my, my stepdad was playing like eight tracks so I heard all this music all this Motown music and all this uh, just a lot of blues you know then at church my mother would go to church and then she just you know go sit where she said and then I would take my bass and um, play with the musicians at the church I had this little tiny amplifier so you could never really hear me at this church but my grandmother would visit the church and she would have words after the choir sing and she would stand up and go my baby sounds so good over there but nobody could hear me and I'm like looking at her like grandma nobody even know I'm over here so it, it was it was beautiful man um you know growing up um with so many um it felt like it was music everywhere. It was like a lot of athletes everywhere. You know, Gary Payton, J.R. Ryder, um, legends that people that didn't make it. I mean, our thugs, our drug dealers was all like heroes, you know. And they all sort of kept me away from it. But they didn't have to because my dad was a uh, – he didn't play, you know, any of that. I had jobs since I knew I was maybe – by the time I was 10, I was, you know, landscaping working at uh, shoe stores and, you know, at 17, I worked at UPS. So I'm not like the person who got into a music industry where I was like, never had a job. I was working because my mother didn't play like, oh, I'm going to be a celebrity. Because I didn't ever think that. I would, My whole thing was um, I never had a B plan. You know, my B plan was to get home from baseball practice safe. I and mean, then that was A. That was the first thing. Like when I come home from baseball practice, we have to walk through the projects to get to our house. So that was my number one thing in the Bay. Second thing was, you know, music. <laughs> so what did they think about, you know, sort of your your love for music, especially as you tried it or started to gravitate toward it more and more? Because that's not the most practical profession to pursue. No, no, no. But nobody was saying I should go to college either. You know, it, was, it wasn't a big thing in my house. Even though my, a couple of my sisters went to universities, <clears throat> but... It wasn't like I see kids today, you know, they studying for the SAT or they're going, you know, to visit colleges. I wasn't visiting 
nowhere. I mean, from I think from first grade, I really hated school. I, I couldn't wait. I asked my mom, when is the last day that I have to do this? But then I actually really did enjoy junior high school and, and then high school. But I knew I wasn't going to college, even though I ended up at UC Berkeley for a, a program called Young Musicians Program, where I was there for three years. When I act like I was really at the university, but I was really there for <laughs> a music program. So I did not really got, I did not really understood why people really enjoy college, you know, but I, you wouldn't understand it coming from my family. So I think my mom's thing was, you know, get a job, work for 40 years, retire, and you have a check coming. So I would just tell her that I would just sort of play the role a little bit. Like I would I would just work, work, work. And if something happened, it, it would jump off. So I think my mom finally saw me. We came on the Arsenio Hall show. That's the first time my mom saw me sing. It was on, on the show. And she, she, she said, I didn't even know he could do that. What about your dad? I mean, was he impressed by some of the things you were able to accomplish? My father was impressed. He he was really impressed. He thought he loved to hear me talk uh, about it. He he liked me to sound very secure about it. So I would have to go into my Muhammad Ali. Like I'd be like, Daddy, ain't nobody battering me. I'm the best, boy. I'm, I'm telling you, when I get out there tonight, I'm gonna kill it. I would just call him and talk to him like that. He was like, Boy, you crazy? But he loved hearing that because he was a little scared. Of us, you know, being out there. So I would have to say all these different things to make him feel good. Now, um, you said it was two years ago when you when you lost him. What do you miss about him the most? I miss uh, letting my dad hear new music before it comes out. And, um, and him asking me, what am I singing about? And and him giving me advice about, have you ever tried to sing a honky-tonk? That's his thing. Have you ever played a honky-tonk? You should play a honky-tonk. People love honky-tonk. Um because my dad always said when Sam Cooke uh, passed away, they wanted him to be the next Sam Cooke. Now, I don't know if that's true. Your dad said he was supposed to be the next Sam Cooke. Could he sing? When Sam he... Yeager sang. Okay. So when Sam died, he said, you know, he said back in the day, they wanted him to be the next Sam Cooke. But he had too many kids. Now, I don't know if that's true. It might be a pop spot. I, I don't know. But he could sing. But he never sang around us. As kids, we never heard him. I never heard him sing until, like, uh, the late... Like nineties or something like that. He, my brother, my oldest brother, would say, "You, you got to hear Daddy sing. You got to hear Daddy sing." I'm saying he never sings around me. Then one day he just busted out and started singing. I was like, "What?" He can. He, he had a high voice. He talked like this all the time. His voice, was, you know, you need to. His voice is very high when he talks. So when he sings, his voice was that high. So now I know where I get my highs from. My mom sings a little bit at church. She sings a little bit. My, my mother has more spirit and soul than a, a voice, but she thinks she's Pat LaBelle, though. So at what point did the thought bubble happen um, that Tony uh, Tony Tone was going to form? Well, they saw it happen because it's two mothers. It's my mother, Edith, and then it's Dwayne's mom, Mary Wiggins. So they they saw us getting together. We were always hanging out. And at one point, I was, you know, the thing is I want to be in a band with my brother one day. Because I wanted to be uh, like the Brothers Johnsons, you know. I looked at their album covers and I said, wow, it'd be cool if me and my brother could play together. He was in different bands. He lived on the other side of town. So he was in schools before me. So I just followed the schools he was into. So I would get, you know, everybody knew who I was because of him. And um, when we got together, we started making records. You know, it was a, I think everybody was really surprised. And then we were still, you know, we were young. We were figuring it out. And uh, we didn't know. We didn't pay too much to family. We was pretty much going the road and be out here more, you know, more. I think we were more excited to be fans of people in the industry and meeting people who 
we sort of looked up to. We didn't really look back at our family, like give them any, uh, we didn't give them any airtime. We, you know, we see them and they be excited for some tickets, but I think we didn't really pay attention to the family that much at all. So where did Tim kind of come into the picture? Yeah. Uh, was he in it from the beginning or, or Tim, did eventually just become a piece? Another. Piece I met Tim when, um, I had a friend named Carl Wheeler who played his, he was a preacher's kid. He lived around the corner from me. So me and him hooked up around seven, around about eight years old. We started playing together, going to churches, singing like a old happy day. And then he started playing keyboards and he told me, maybe in what's about in the ninth grade, he says this guy named Timothy Riley, um, he's like one of the baddest drummers around and keyboard players. So it's almost like, you know, in sports when you just know somebody's balling out. He was like the kid that was balling out. So I, we met him, I introduced myself to him. And then I recruited him to come to my high school as a junior. And so we could be the rhythm section for the choir and the jazz band. And then we just stuck like glue. And um, then I introduced him to my brother. And then um, my brother came and played with sort of the guys that I accumulated, my cousins and everybody else. And that's how Tim sort of came along. So at what point did you go out um, and tour with Prince? Right? Was that, that before the that formation? That was before the Tonys. Okay, that was before the Tonys. So how now, did that I, happen? I was 19 and I was a, it's a, a guy named Joe Capers. He has a studio. He's called Blind Man Joe. He was blind. And he had all the studio equipment. So that was sort of like the meeting spot where everybody would meet. To, to try to record a song. Nobody never knew how to record music or anything. We just go up there. And um, one day I was up there and um, Sheila's musical director called that house because he knew it would be musicians there. Sheila as in Sheila E. Sorry, Sheila E. Yeah. Sheila We're not all on a first name basis with it right, like right. that. <laughs> yeah, Sheila, Sheila E. Um, and Prince. So the phone rung. I'm sitting in the living room and some pick up the phone and said, this is Levi Caesar. Um, he wants to know, is there anybody up there could sing and dance, which that's a line from Purple Rain. And have an audition tomorrow in San Francisco. I went to San Francisco the next day. Me and my brother Dwayne auditioned with over 100 people. Um, this guy had already had the bass gig. He was the musical director's cousin. Then I auditioned, and they told me to wait around. They said, you got the gig. So I got the gig. Um, the next day, I was coming to rehearsal. Um, I told my mom I got the gig to play with, you know, with Sheila. Sheila E. And my mom said, you should take Tim with you the next day. I said, but Sheila, Sheila E. said, you know, wait for a couple of days. She said, no, just take him. I took him. She told him to get on the drums. Now it's me and Tim. The next day I brought Carl and then Carl Wheeler. And then it was all three of us. And then we were in Tokyo playing with Prince in, um, in a stadium, singing Erotic City. And, um, I mean, were you nervous? Were you... I was I mean, were you aware of what uh, this meant? <laughs> I wasn't aware of what it meant. It was at the height of Prince's career and Sheila's career too, but um, I was prepared from high school. I went to a school, wasn't a school of arts, but it could have been. That's Castlemont High School. And my jazz band teacher and the choir teacher both were from um, Gramlin and Southern. And they had this, you know, they teach us to, you know, walk in the room, be present, um, act like you belong there. Don't take any pictures of anybody. Don't be excited. And it fit exactly right with Prince. So when we got there, you know, we just, it was really cool. And Prince walked up in this yellow suit outside in, in um, Tokyo. And he walked up to all three of us and said, um, what's your name? You know, like, I'm, I'm Raphael. He's Tim. I'm Carl. He's like, hi, I'm Prince. He so we, introduced himself as if you did not know that was Prince. Yeah, we were like, no, shh. <laughs> 
<laughs> no shit. kidding. You got on yellow suit. You can curse. No shit. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> you Princeton. He was like really um, helpful, and you know would always invite us to play after parties, shows, and always put a ton of like models and chicks around us. He was, he was, he was just showing us things like you know like, um, you know being around a lot of you know powerful management companies and see how an arena band works. So to to go from that type of tour to come back. You know, and start the Tonys again and open up for, like, we were opening up for Ready for the World and uh, and Bobby Brown, when Bobby Brown had Kings of Stage. So we, we came back to just playing, lo- as a local band, we'd have a record out. But we'd already saw the biggest, so we had to sort of work our way back into uh, the other atmosphere. Now, um, now with the Tonys, um, at what point did you feel like a, my God, we're we're really successful. Like, what was that moment when you realized like how big this band really had become? I never really realized it at all. I just I just knew I just didn't have a job at UPS. That's all I knew. I never really realized that we were big. I just knew we had a record out and we could go on tour and and we could make people proud. I didn't really know how big it was, really. Now, is that because you were still in Oakland or you just said you just weren't aware of how people were responding to the music? No, I think I was aware how they was responding to the music, but I just didn't know um I, first of all, I was a new I was new to singing. I was I was never a singer, right? So, I didn't sing until the Tony's records. I was a bass player, so I played for groups. I was sort of like the side guy. But I sang one record and the label was like, he has to sing a lot more records. So I was really trying to work the vocals out, not trying to be flat, not trying to be get booed. I had all these other things in my head, like how to have a good show. I had already seen like shows like Earth, Wind & Fire and the Commodores and, you know, the Grateful Dead was in my neighborhood. So I've seen all these big shows. I was just trying to be good. I didn't have time to sit back and go, you know, and think about... Um, how big we were, you know, I wasn't, you know, spending, I wasn't spending a lot of money, you know, I had some money, but I wasn't, you know, I was worried about, you know, a lot of people make money, but then they broke or you have one album. I remember uh, we did this show and it was, the lights were out and we were walking on the stage and the guy, the promoter had a flashlight so we can get up the stairs. And this one, this guy never forgot his voice. I couldn't see his face. As I was walking up the stairs, he said, he said to me, yeah, this is your first record. Let's see what your next record does. And from that time on, I've been on the same page. Mm. That it's not that you only as funky as your last cut, right? Like last that kind of that's a that's the uh, mentality. So out of you guys have had so many as a group, you had so many classic love songs. You've obviously had some too as an individual. Um, but between say, you know, lay your head on my pillow and it never rains in Southern California and uh whatever you want and anniversary. Which one of those songs um, or songs like that has like the best backstory? Because I imagine when people <laughs> talk to you, they always assume that like, oh, this story, this song had to be about somebody or this, there had to be a story behind this or for it to be so great. But what are the songs has the best backstory? Maybe something most of your, your fans and listeners don't know. I would say whatever you want is like a, is a cool story because Dwayne Dwayne wrote the song, but I wrote a part of it too, and they didn't give me credit for it. They said I didn't write on it, but my first ever phone, my mom is the type of mother who she don't believe in, you know, putting bills in her name. So she's like, you have to have your own phone, 
in your name. So that was my first phone, and that's my phone number, 632-2135. So that was a real number? <laughs> that's my first number ever to my first number in my, in, my, in my house in the room. So I didn't say nothing to them until like recently. I told my brother, I said, you do know that was my phone number, right? So, and we laughed about that. I think that was probably the funny thing about that. That's my real phone number. Now, um, a lot of people, uh, myself included, were very heartbroken when you guys broke up. What was it, 97, I think? 96, 97, yeah. Okay, when, when you left. Um, when you left, um, there seemed to be some level of drama that was surrounding everything. I mean, what was it that you said that kind of caused that departure? You know, it's funny. We, we just knew that it was just... Uh, we were just young and nobody really understood anything. It wasn't a contract thing or it wasn't a money thing. It's just we had different ideas about how we wanted to move forward. Um, I think I was I was being way more streamlined than them. I wasn't really um, – I didn't want to be around, around a lot of people that they were around, which which should have been fine. It's okay to, to, to be around different people, but I just wanted to do – I wanted to rehearse – I wanted to spend the money on a product. I wanted to put strings on records. That's a lot of money. You know, sometimes that could be like eighty to $100,000, the project. They wanted to put the $100,000 in their pocket, which I understand. I wanted to put, that's why Anniversary sounds like it sounds, because it has that orchestra on it. You know, that might have cost me 75000 but it was money I wasn't going to see anyway. So I'm like, if I had my opportunity to make a record... And I had this machine behind me. I want to use the best possible um, equipment to, you know, call the best people um, I could possibly find to to make these records that I want to be around longer than me. And um, I think that was why I, I I left. And I think they understood later on, like, the dude was about making the product the best product that he could. And other than that, we were always cool. They just They just had a different idea. We never really had no real, real drama. Me and my brother, none, none at all. I just, I just knew I had to do something else. I didn't want to be just a temptation forever. Mm. I didn't want to be a Tony forever. I wanted to go out and do some other things, play with some other people, you know. So how did you um, wind up getting linked up with uh, John Singleton on Boys in the Hood? Um, I think John met me in passing one day, and he said, you know, he said you should score a film one day, and. Um, so I got this movie called Boys in the Hood, and he just gave me uh, a couple of, like, pointers and said, you know, Neil Long and Cuba Gooding are going to be in this locker room scene just kind of making out as, you know, teenagers, and I need a song for that scene. That was it. I had never seen it. And um, once I did that, I was in every, almost every movie John made, I was, I was pretty much in it. I think that was higher learning that I did ask of you. And he, I didn't see that. He just told me that the character, the girl name was Deja. Would you throw in the, would you throw in the song? You, Deja. I love yeah, you, Deja. Yeah, it wasn't. Right. So, yeah, he, he gave me, you know, it was like sight, just like, you know, like a, like a call and do it. And I just sort of did it. Yeah. So when you did, when you first told them, though, that you wanted to leave, um, they may, I mean, it may not have been any beef or drama or strife, though, but they. It's sure. just. I was going to say, they yeah, had to be mad. Probably, my brother probably a little pissed, but I didn't even tell nobody I was leaving. And we came up, we did this last show at the um, Hard Rock. VH1 used to have this Hard Rock VH1 show they, they, used, to, they used to shoot. We we put out Sons of Show, our last album. And we filmed that. And I came home. I sat on my piano 
with my back to the piano. My, it's, it's right in front of my house. But when I walk in, I just drop my bag and said, I'm not, I'm not going back. And I never went back. Mm. And I just started producing. Um, every, once, every once in a while, honestly, that's when I met Brian. And then from there, you know, um, I had a detail shop. And this guy owned this detail shop in Sacramento. And all the kings would get, you know, Mitch Richmond, everybody was getting their cars washed there. And my company would go pick up cars from like the, from uh, the Capitol. So they had like Willie Brown, all these cars. And when I come back, I seen Brian, I was riding a motorcycle one day. He was driving his car. He said, man, that's your detail shop, right, bro? And I was like, yeah. Because I, when I first saw him, I was somewhere, he thought I grew up in Sacramento and he didn't want to come to, that's when nobody wanted to play for the Kings. And he said, uh, he saw me, he said, man, um, yeah, I said, man, uh, I'm sorry about you having, you know, come to Sac. I know you're probably a little pissed off while I come in here. He says, no, 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 man, he gave me the, the real corporate. No, no, man, I'm so happy to be in Sacramento, be a part of the, uh, the community. And, um, you know, me and my family, we just so happy to be. I was like, bro, I am not that dude. He said, okay, cool. Fuck. <laughs> He's like, cool. He's like, yeah, bro. And, and then from there, we was really cool. And I saw him again. And we hung out and we've been friends ever since then. And that's when I really started going to a lot of games and watching games and getting into other stuff. And I just stopped playing music for about a year. I was playing in the studio a little bit, but I just took a, a, a vacation from it. And I had new friends, really just him, you know, before he had no kids when he met me. So I just, I was hanging around, you know, going to a couple, you know, I bought season tickets. I never ever bought season tickets for anything. And um, I took a year off. I think I produced, at that time, I did Lady for D'Angelo off the Brown Sugar album. And I did Kissing You for Toto. But I was running. I wasn't trying to. And um, somebody tricked me and put Puffy on the phone. Um, it was Toto. And he said, you want to? And I was like, I, I wanted to do it, but I was I was hanging out. You know, I mean, my boy was, he was fresh in the league. You know, I had tickets. You know, he was about to get some new money. He was like, yeah, my, my new contract, if I stay here, my boy get to park his car downstairs next to the player's car. I was like, okay, you're going too far with that. But I was like, I appreciate it. But just just, just do your contract, right? And so they put me on a three-way call. I was on a call, and it's like, I got Puffy on the phone. And he was like, bro, you got to produce this, this group. And that's how I ended up doing that record. I mean, I was chilling that hard. I was not trying to be around music. I had new friends and it was cool. It was like my break after the Tonys. And then I got back into it and um, ended up doing Lucy Pro. Was there any part of you during that break where you were thinking, I may never go back? Or were you always intending to re eventually return to music? I was intending on turning, you know, turning back to music because I had a studio downstairs in my garage. But Life just feels good sometimes when you just like live life, go to restaurants. I'm sort of in that phase now a lot, but um, I love music. It's like it's one of my first loves, but it feels good to like, you know, to get that separation because some people can't break. And I, for me, the biggest thing in life for me as being a musician is being able to turn on a switch and then turn it off. The turning it off is the best thing you could ever do, you know, because when you're in front of people, you want to be on for a show. But once they can't see you, you off the stage, you have to click that light off. And that's what I've been able to do. So when I click it off sometimes, you know, it's a minute before I turn it back on. Mm -hmm. I'd rather turn it back on but producing or something like that. Well, since you brought up basketball a moment ago, um, we're going to take a short break. But you know I got to talk to you about your Warriors. Of course. Okay, I got to talk to you about the Warriors. You still a Raider fan? 
Yeah. Okay. You're not when they move to Vegas. You're still not gonna give up on them. Nobody's giving up. Okay. On them. So now I, we really gonna have to have some intense sports conversations because okay. it's a lot that the Warriors are going through right now. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear your take on it too. All I'm right. Like, I, I, I'll give you my uh my my hot takes, my quick thoughts. But we'll take this break right now and then uh, come right back. All right, as I mentioned before the break, I'm not going to let you get out of here without talking about the Warriors. So, were you, of course, you were disappointed. Were you kind of heartbroken with how this finals turned out? Because it was a lot of injuries. It seemed like everything that could go wrong went wrong for the Warriors. So, how do you assess their performance this year? I felt like we won a lot. It would have been sweet to win one more. Now, I'm just three peat. But I, I felt like. I felt like the NBA didn't really want it. They needed us to disband anyway. Oh, this sounds like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to conspiracy route. But I just felt like it was enough. I mean, I wasn't really that sad when they lost, honestly. I was like, you know what? Let them dudes break up and go make their money and go figure out their life, you know, on other teams. I felt like um, I hung out with Draymond, I think, a year ago, at one of the playoff games, after the games, and... You know, I met him personally. He was a solid cat, you know what I mean? He was a solid cat. But then when I saw him and KD get into it, I feel like that never really mended, even though I, they were professional and they, you know, they're making money together. I felt like I felt like KD was like, nah, I need to go somewhere and be me. And that's why, that's why I didn't really care that they lost, you know? I felt like I, I really want – I'm into seeing, like, what the GM's doing to put the teams – that's the best part about basketball to me now. It's like the, you know, that – that theory of like, let me see how you're going to manage putting a team back together. I mean, we still got Steph Curry and Clay. I don't think we're in a bad position at all. No. And we still got Draymond. I think we're good. We need a couple more pieces, star pieces, maybe one. Yeah, probably another one. I mean, right. I know look, people forget, and then granted, the team did change once they got Kevin Durant, but before they got him, I mean, they were, good. they were pretty successful. Okay, and I'm a huge KD fan. No, he's a great player. Yeah. Um, I, And I, I think independent probably of that – of that tiff he had with Draymond, I think he was still probably leaving just because, I mean, and he had said it so many times and in different ways leading up to that or leading up to his departure. I think he was honestly stunned at how much people hated him coming to Golden State. And I think he wanted his flowers while he was still here, so to speak. And that didn't come when he was with Golden State. And it just made things, I think, a little bit uncomfortable, even though I completely understood why he decided to do it. Because uh, to me, and look, I know a lot of people think it's abhorrent for somebody to have been, uh, you know, on the Thunder. They were up 3-1 on Golden State. And then the very next year, <laughs> you know, then the, then the next season you join them. And it sort of it felt too much like a, if you can't beat them, join them situation. But at the same time, I mean, we live in a, a sports society now where there's so much pressure on guys to win championships. That's all people want to know about, how many rings you got. And so you can't really blame the players if they're angling, um, coming together, super teaming it so they can win as many championships as possible. It's, it's a new league. Yeah. It's not the same back in the day when Magic was playing and all those guys when they, you know, you were, you were Celtic, you were Celtic. I mean, LeBron started it and it seemed like everybody just forgot that he didn't get on the stage with three people and like and just sit there on the stage with lights on. 
So, I mean, LeBron started it, and I, I love that LeBron is like um, um, sort of spearheading this whole thing. You could be yourself because to me, I'm like, what's the difference between the GM putting Kareem, Magic, and Worthy on the team? But when the players started doing it, it felt like it was a problem because they're doing it. Now it's a problem. What do you think you guys have been doing? Now they can call each other on the phone and say, bro, let's go to Brooklyn. I love it that Kyrie and KD, like, you know, we're just going to phone, let's, let's go to Brooklyn. You know, players are just like moving things themselves. So I think it's I think it's great. I just think it's a new league because when they they don't it sounds like to me when they talk about the regular season. In some kind of way, they it sound like the the sound bites sort of sound like they're saying that the regular season is nothing. Well, are you hearing that a lot? It's it's sort of true. I mean, there's some truth to it. But they say it. They never. Yeah. <laughs> they, I thought the whole season was important until like two years ago. Now, whenever, every time I hear people talk about this season, they go, like, forget the season. You know, so you can almost – it's like they should just have the playoffs and the championship now. Well, the hard part, too, especially now with the way the awards are given out, because by the time – I mean, it was a new ch- NBA champion in Toronto, and people, I think for a moment, had sort of forgotten James Harden was the was the MVP from that season, right? Or, or really, I think it was Giannis. I think Giannis won it. Yeah, I think it was Giannis who won it. Sorry. And so, um, you know, that's people. But that's what I'm saying. It's like the awards come so far later that people forget this because you just went through a whole postseason where you saw Kawhi Leonard as the best player. And so it's sort of putting, to your point, so much more emphasis on on the postseason and the regular season is getting more and more distant from from you even caring about it. It matters because you got to get home court. You got to make the playoffs. But it doesn't matter in the sense that the best player in the regular season may not be the best player in the postseason. And people weigh the postseason a little heavier. In That's my true. Opinion. So um, I, for me, I, I have no dog in the fight, but I kind of wanted the Warriors to win it, to see the three-peat. I like I did, greatness. Yeah. yeah, to see the three-peat and to see the three-peat in Oakland. Because they're moving, Definitely. yeah. But they're moving to like we could throw a rock to the where the place they're it's still going. not yeah, Oakland. It's not Oakland, yeah. Because yeah. now we don't have the Raiders. I was gonna and say, and now not you're gonna not gonna have, have the Raiders. Then um, athletics may be moving. Correct. So for you as somebody who grew up there, you know, to kind of see these changes, um, I talk. I have several friends from Oakland. Um, they all talk about gentrification. Um, does it bother you to see just how much Oakland is changing? Yeah, I think people are just, we just have to look at Oakland. It's not, we love the people. We grew up there, but it's not really, um, they'll never be able to take over the complete Oakland. There's way too much soul in Oakland, but we can't get caught up in that little small place. We have to venture out and find other things, Oakland people, because wherever we go, we're going to prevail. But it's definitely, um, when I go back, I, I make sure my carbon footprint is all in Oakland. I go to every restaurant. Every neighborhood, look for property. I do everything because I I, I still want to be a part of it. But, I, I mean, we just got to move around the world a little bit more. Yeah, there was a restaurant in Oakland. Um, one of my really good friends, she took me to, Amina, um, uh, called Sands. I think Marshawn Lynch bought it. Yeah, yeah. See? The soul food joint that yeah. he used to go to when he was a kid. Yeah. And he bought it. That place yeah. is phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. I haven't been there yet, but I heard that he bought it. Marshawn Lynch is doing a lot of great things for the community. He's a He's a good dude. So um, we were talking in kind of the first half of this podcast about how, uh, or you mentioned like how you were a band guy. And after, of course, Tony Tony Tone was Lucy Pearl. Man, what the hell happened to Lucy Pearl? Yeah, well, Don, 
Don is uh, the lead singer, right? The lead singer was from, with, she's um, in, was Vogue, in Vogue, right? and we got her. She wanted to do a solo record when she left in Vogue. So when we got her, she was basically lending us her talents with, uh, you know, thinking she was going to do a solo record, but she kind of overstepped it and wants to do the solo record once Lucy Pro was ahead. And she sort of sort of quit in the middle of the tour to do her solo album, which I don't think ever, maybe it came out, but I never heard about it. But, I mean, we couldn't really be mad at her. I mean, we, moment, it was just unbelievable. you had to be mad at her a little bit, no, it, right? just, it just forced me to do my first solo record was Instant Vintage. So, like I said, I was, I'm a band guy, so I never wanted to do, I never really wanted to do solo records, but that, that forced our hand. You know, we were, I think we were in Amsterdam and, um, I think she was toasting and toasting champagne bottles and saying it was her last show. And we were like, wow. Yeah, group, groups are like Spinal Tap. They're funny things. This is the, the funny thing happens with bands and it's, you know, knowledge is just wasted on the youth. This is wa- it's wasted on the young. You know, I don't think she would do that. Um, you know, she could really do it over. I don't think I would have left the Tonys how I left the Tonys if I. Because I would, it was my older brother. I just didn't know how to talk to him and tell him, like, I don't really agree with how you live in. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like that was my job. I felt like that was his parents' job. So you, you said you, you don't, like, in hindsight, were you saying you would have left later or you just would have, or you would have never left at all? I, I mean, probably would have never left at all. I, would, I probably just would have said, let's just, you know, um, I'm going to do a record. Let's put this record out. Let's tour behind it. Let's go make the most we can make out of it. I'm going to do my record. I'll come back and let's do another record. I'll just kept building it. Mm-hmm. Well, you said you didn't like how he's living. What do you, you mean? Like decisions he was making or like what was it that was? I just felt like it was people around him that weren't really good for him. And it was people around me too weren't good for me either. But I felt like if we was together and understood each other a little bit more that we could have weaned a lot of people off of us if we would have been a, a tighter unit but we as people as money was breaking us apart even though it wasn't a lot of money but it was breaking us apart because you can go get this you can go get that and you know you, you can every night you can go to a club and it's, it's about you you know so um i've heard there are rumblings that you all are getting back together as a band well i came on a couple of shows and i mentioned that we were going to get back together. So my, my thing is I've always wanted to do that just to show that black bands can make it together. So that's that's a, something on my sh- – I'm trying to trying to put together where we should make this instrumental record, like Cool in the Gang. We, we're huge Cool in the Gang fans, and back in the day in the 70s, they were making these amazing records like Summer Madness where, you know, people – I just want people to come out to a park. I just vision people coming to a park and we walk out and we just playing this amazing music. And it's like the first three songs are just these instrumentals that people actually love at the park. And then we go into the album that we never really actually sang, which, which was Sons of Soul, the last record. So that's some sort of my, um, that's my dream. And my brother's been hanging, we've been, he was here last night. He came on stage and played with me at the Spotify party. So it was, you know, and my dad's not around now. I kind of want my mom and his mom to see it and my brothers to see it. It's more like a family. It's more like a family thing, bro. Let's just show everybody that. I mean, everybody know we don't have any problems. Like, you know, I, I got to say, I can call my brother in the middle of the night when I drive to Oakland. If he's in town, I'm like, bro, I'm on 12th Street. I'm at this bar. He's like, where? I'm on my way. Shh. That's how it's always been. 
Right, and the same goes for uh, Tim as well, right? Same yeah. goes for yeah. Tim. Yeah, but I said when we were younger, we just we didn't have any real problems. I think they just thought that I would be like this guy that um always wanted to leave. You know, they but that, thought, is that just because you thought were I was the lead KD. singer? Is they that thought I, <laughs> it's the lead singer syndrome. They yeah. thought I had that. I totally didn't, and I just had a. You was David Ruff and Eddie K. <laughs> yeah, like my <laughs> Right now, but I just more had the more organizational. Thing type of skills I just that's what I had I was all about practicing and um, being the best and um, I think I had to just go out and show them who I was you know and hold them up because I, I don't think I could have I could have got to where I'm at now without them because you know planning the Tonys in the beginning like I said I wasn't singing so I had a wall of people behind me that was really really good and um, I can have the confidence to go out there and sing and perform and all of that stuff so I feel like, um, and I could talk to them now like a leader. You know, I always call it, if you look on the Sons of Soul album, no, House of Music, and you open it up and you look at the inside sleeve, it says my name and it says Point Guard by it. And so none of them knew what it meant because when we did that record, that was our last album, House of Music. Um, and if you look at the pictures, it's separate. It's like a couple of guys look like Muslims, had like these bow ties on, that's what we did, let's get down. Um, and then it's Dwayne and Tim together. We were separate. They wore something different because I didn't want them to wear what I was wearing. But they didn't know that. But that's how the pictures came out. But under my picture, it says point guard. Tim saw that and he put, he didn't know why I was doing it. He said race car driver. I was like. <laughs> he thought you were just picking a sports Yeah. A different sports So if position. you look at his, you know, Dwayne and Bite, he just says Dwayne. Tim says race car driver. I was like, oh, he totally didn't get it. But what I meant was. <laughs> I know how to dish the ball to people who can do the job. That's that's always been me. I've always been able to like, you know, find uh if I'm working with, you know, an artist, I know how to pass the ball when it's time to pass the ball. And that's what I meant by that. I can point to things I need to get done. And that's how I saw myself. But I didn't know how to talk to them to tell them that's who I'm that's who I am. I'm not like the solo guy who wants to be, you know. You know, it's all about me. I was never the guy. But it's probably hard for them to understand that at that age. But they both know now. Now, what's your favorite thing about producing other artists? I think my favorite thing about producing other artists are, um, you know, you write a song with somebody and, 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 you, get, and you get to see people, um, you know, love something that you worked on. And, and they actually out there singing and I could just sit at home and watch. That's the best part, you know, and uh, and then, you know, you have something, a different bond and you're growing different music with different people, different generations. And they also, um, you know, when you see somebody and you make music, it's like you're creating this, this experience. And when you see them, you could, you know, like when I did, you know, worked with D'Angelo and we did Lady. At the time, the label really didn't know who he was, but we both knew. So when I seen him at a show, and he was about to, he was on the stage. He was like, you know, and the people was already crazy about him. And when I saw him, he looked at me and said, they didn't know, bro. They didn't know, but we knew. And that's the best thing about that to me. When you work with Solange, was it kind of the, the same thing in, in, in the sense that I don't think anybody really knew what to expect from her. And then all of a sudden, I would see Cranes in the Sky drops, which you did. And it was, I was, I could have thought of, 
20 things I could have expected to come from Solange. That wasn't one of them. And she she just kind of stunned people with, um, you know, with her, not just her talent, but just her entire aura. So how were you able to kind of bring that out in, in that particular record? Well, Solange always had that. She always had this. She's a visionary, you know what I mean? You see her whole, her, um, the looks that she that she gives, she's funny, you know, she's really a funny girl, you know, and um, her her videos, all the looks that she gives and, you know, the graphics and everything is just so well put together. And sonically, I'm something else for her. And that's why she sort of came to me. But, um, but Cranston, the music for Cranston Sky was a song that I was going to put on some record that I did one day, but... Your own or somebody else's? Mine. Okay. Um, so... I called Solange to work on a record with me just to write because she's a great songwriter. And so it had to be, that record was eight years old. That music was eight years old. It wasn't even, um, I didn't even have the files for it. She had to use, that was off of a CD. And so it was no way to really mix it. It's not even a mix on that record. And we luckily, I'm lucky to find one that I wasn't singing on. I found an instrumental and the, and then she wrote a different song to it, which was Cranes in the Sky. But the best thing is when you when you when you work with somebody like Solange, I like working with people that have an, uh, an idea of what they want to do and what they want to be and what and what they want to hear once they hear it. Because I can play it. I love melody. I love chords. I love colors, and I love things that get me. Once it gets me, I'm ready to send it out to people. But I, I can't tell you that I knew that was going to do that for her. Like, she called me and said, do you see what's going on? And I'm like, no, what's going on? She said, look at Twitter. And I was like, I don't even know how to look at Twitter and figure that out. So <laughs> I did look, but I was like, yeah, I don't see what you're saying, but okay, cool. <laughs> it, it, does it work that way sometimes where, like, the things you don't expect to, like, blow up, blow up, and then the things you want to blow up, you're like, why didn't this blow up? Does, is that how it works? That's how it works. That's why I tell people when you put out a record, just never – Expect anything. Expect the unexpected. Don't when people. How many numbers you think you're gonna do? I'm gonna say, dude, I've never done that. When I made anniversary, I just liked it because I liked it. And then when I put it out, and then you just see what it does. But you never, you just never know. You just have to be in the moment. You have to have that drive, that will. Um, you have to really believe in you know what you, what you're doing, and you really have to love it. Are there artists that you work with? Um, that you won't work with again? Yeah, definitely. There's one artist. He's from, um, I don't remember his name. He's from Sweden. He was he was a head case. I mean, I, I mean, I think they gave me what, $40,000, $50,000 to work with him. I gave them the money back. It was that bad? It was bad. He We would just have time to work. He would just be outside on my lawn on the grass, just sitting down on the grass. And then he would... Um, he, um, I think I was working one day. And he, I was mixing a record, and I was going to be done at a certain time. So he said, I said, well, be back at this time. He didn't come back. He was like four hours late. So I left the mix up, left an engineer there. They said he came back with about a room full of girls, but he wanted to come back, look like I Raphael working for me. And he, when he got back, I was gone, and he was pissed. I heard he was like, where is he at? He was freaking out, but he was super talented. Amazing, but he never really became anything. But he was—he had this this head trip. And this industry is one of those things where, you know, you can see your name on a um, 
on a billboard or a sign or your dressing room and lose your mind and never never come back. It's the little things in this business that uh, you know, it's like working. You know, you got a job and your name is in the parking on the ground, and when you get there, you're like, I'm special, and it is special, but you can't take it and you know and let it you know go to your head. It's like Cal going like Cal going take me away. You just never come back. So you know, I just I don't blame artists. It's just it's it's a hard business tonight. To stay grounded, and you just have to really know you, you just that you need to stay grounded. So there's, it's an incredibly long, impressive list of the people you have worked with. But in case this person exists, is there somebody you have not worked with that you would love to work with? No, people ask me that question a lot. It just don't work like that for me. I don't, I don't long to work with anybody. It's just if we vibe, and somebody you get the call. And I just say, let's let's make it happen. I, I don't I have I don't even know. Um, it's like, artists I like. I like Lucky Day. He's a he's a new artist, and I do like, you know, I do like uh, her, and and um, but all these people are doing really good without me. So, <laughs> but like, yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like the new generation is really is really putting there. Like, I feel like finally now we have our new league. Like sports have their new league. I don't think we had one for a minute. I think we have a new generation that's really, really killing the game. And, and if they keep their head together, you know, they could be around for a long time. Well, how do you decide if you want to work with somebody? You said it's got to be a vibe there. That's one piece of it. But, like, is there any other components that you feel like have to be there in order to compel you to work well, with they, this person? They have to be able to sing. Well, okay. But no, <laughs> no people will send you some people they can't sing. That's, that, that's not a... You know, oh, that's a thing. Okay. So they have to be able to sing. Um, they have to, you know, we have to both believe that I can add something to what they do. And that's the most important part. You want to be able to add something, bring something to the round table. I always say, you know, if you can't bring nothing to the round table, you should be sitting sitting at the table. So, and, um, you know, people like an a person would say, you know, I think that you could, you know, you could do something with Catreon. I think you guys would do something great. And I also think that. So it just has has to match up. We have both have to believe it. And once we both believe it, I think that's when the magic happens. Now, when you're scoring for, for movies, how is that different for you, um, you know, as opposed to any other level of production work that you do? I think scoring film is different because you have to have a level of uh, humility. You have to be, because they can turn your, everything you do down. Like, they don't have to like it. And they don't like it a lot. It's not that they don't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't work with cinematography. And so, like, you know, somebody could be like, um, yeah, I, th- I think you, I need you to stick more to, uh, stick more, a little a little darker to to the temp. You know, be closer to the temp. And, like, they give you a temp to work with that they might not like the temp. So they forget the temp, just try something. And then you sit in a room with everybody when you're spotting the show. It's like if we're watching this show on TV and, you know, somebody curse somebody out or somebody's and, – and you play this music that doesn't fit, they just look at you and like it doesn't work. So when in music, when you're producing music, you're making things for yourself and you're making things fit and it works. In film, they can say, no, your ego could be crushed. But that's why I like it because – it makes you very, you know, humble. You have to sit in a room when people say no, and I think sometimes no is a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. I think, and music, I always, I'm a huge sort of like a sports guy. So what I like about sports is you have to be good. I mean, I mean, 
the player that's not the star still could really beat me if he see me on the court. If you know football, basketball, golf, anything, tennis, hockey, anything. You know, the worst person is way, way better than me. I feel like in the music industry, there's no um there's no uh what do you call it? Um fundamentals that you have to have all the time. Like you can hang out um in a club all night if you're a young player with diamonds on everything but when you get to the court to the game and everybody's watching and you shoot a three-pointer and it's go bang it looks bad you know in music you don't even have to sing no more you could just actually sing to a backtrack completely you can you can vocal tune your voice completely you cannot vocal tune a jump shot you have to actually make the shot you don't have to make the shot in music industry no more you can you can you could put uh a, a Labrador retriever on a mic and if he barks you can tune it you know you, you can almost I've seen it on YouTube I've seen this Alaskan Husky singing um, in uh, auto tune I was like yo that's crazy he was and they and they were playing it and he was it was matching the record and he sounded like some of the records out today <laughs> that's, that's a shameful part it's like oh wow don't take my word for it look Alaskan Husky <laughs> you singing on auto tune I was sitting there like damn this is amazing but it's real so it's, I felt like music is different you have to like we have a lot of artists now really going for it but it's one thing fundamentals are not in music and sports, you really still, that's why I like sports because I get to see something a little real besides, you know, you can't, you know, if you, if you guarding somebody, you can't, you can't put, you can't guide the, the, the guy with the ball no more. So basketball did change a little bit, but sports do change a little bit, but not as much as my field, like in music, it's just, it's the rules are just, it's crazy. Yeah, um, uh, you sound like somebody who did you play sports growing up? You played baseball. I played baseball. Basketball. I play. I didn't play any organized basketball. Okay. I didn't play any organized football. But I played with everybody who played organized football and organized basketball. Um, so and my I, whole neighborhood was just you know that's all we did every day was play you know pick up games. We played football. You know we was playing tackle football, no pads. And but football, I grew up wearing a bunch of boys from Mississippi, and we were all the same size for one minute. And I grew up with a bunch of Samoans. And I just noticed everybody got real big. And they was like, no, you could play. You could play. Because I was running the ball all the time. I, I like to be a running back, right? But I was like, dude, I'm like a 115 wet. It's not happening. <laughs> well, I guess to, um, uh, before I get you out of here, I got to put you on the spot about two questions. One, best athlete to come out of Oakland. I'll even, I'll even say your favorite. I'll go your favorite athlete to come out of Oakland. Ooh. I would say... Gary Payton, the glove. Glove. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, as you know, uh, you have uh, Kamala Harris, who's yeah, running. Kamala. Yeah, who's running for for president. Um, what are your thoughts on on her? I haven't followed Kamala, um, but Kamala's a friend of mine. Kamala, um, was my when I lived in Sacramento, my friend Billy Rutland and Terry Rutland and. Uh, work with Willie Brown. So Kamala used to be next door to my house all the time. We hung out. We used to hang out. I took her to Digital Underground concert back in the day. She's a friend of mine. She's a really good friend of mine. That's great. All yeah. right. Digital Underground. <laughs> yeah. Kamala used to be at the, at, the, at the Fillmore in San Francisco hanging out. She's, she's a real bay girl. Yeah. Okay. Um, with another, I guess, Oakland product. 
Tupac, even though New York tries Tupac, to... Tupac, yeah, he's a little bit of both. Yeah, he's they, a little bit of both, but yeah, we, we, we used to run into Tupac on the street all the time. And, um, and you work with him, too. Correct? Yeah, you guys work with Pac. And, um, yeah, he's a great dude. I, I just hate that we lost him that way, you know, him and Biggie. But, yeah, he was a talented, you know, actor. I mean, wow, right? I mean, this dude could have be, he could be, he could have been making the big movies, man. He was a, just to see him, I would see him when he was with Suge and, he was never the guy that I've seen him what they, he, when he was acting out. I just think I just thought he was a method actor. I just thought he was he was a you know a tough guy, but he just knew how to act it out. He just knew how to do that, you know. But yeah, every time I hear his voice, I'm I'm so uh, amazed with how he he's still how he's still around and how people just you know how how they revere him and um and I didn't know much about him when he was living. I I learned more about him when he when he passed away. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you seem like such a, a chill, calm person. I'm sure a lot of people probably tell you that. Uh, so it's almost um, it's almost a bit of an awkward transition because the last segment I usually do for this podcast is about being the opposite. It's called "fuck it, I'm bothered," and so it's about things yeah. that actually piss me off that I'm bothered about. I like that, and I go off on it a little bit. You seem like you never. Oh no, I do. Do yeah. you? Okay, yeah, all right. I do. Yeah, so, no. All right. This is because I'm like I'm just so much chill, calm vibes. No, so no. there are things you get bothered about, I'm sure as well, right? Yeah, of course. Okay, all right. I thought so because I was. It's like he can't be this calm all the time. But nevertheless, though. Um, <laughs> they hear it all. <laughs> Trust me, they hear it all. I'll be, like, Yo. I'll be like, yeah, I get bothered by things. Like, yeah, definitely. I'm like, um, just, you know, me walking my own walk was my own thing. I just never really cared about, like, an industry. I was never going to be. I, I marched them to the beat of my own drum all the time, you know. So I was just like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's why I really, like, you know, I don't know LeBron James, but – and I was I wasn't a Cleveland fan at all, um, but what I did like I liked um, LeBron and Maverick, like what they did. That is me. When I saw that, I was like, hell yeah! <laughs> I was like, move wherever you want to move, do what you want to do, move to LA, start a just like just that's like fuck it, like, yeah, fuck everybody, like you know just. Just and even you, I saw you when you were going through, you know, yeah. your 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 thing, and I saw that I was like, okay, yeah, see, because I watched the show. What's the guy named? Uh, Michael Smith. Yeah, yeah, I watched the show. I'm like, I'm an ESPN. I was a junkie. I just stopped a little bit because I was watching it too much. You know, too I just, much. Yeah, I was sitting there and I was watching the show. You know, it just it repeats, and after a while, I've seen the same news like 17 times in one day. You know, that's uh, a trick. Okay. That's the trick is dun, 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 dun. Now I'm back at the same story. I'm like, dude, they got yeah. me. But I'm not leaving. They, what one else you going to watch? One thing, yeah, it's true. That's, that's, but the one thing about ESPN that you said, I, I was always wondering, like, I'm not complaining about it, but it's just so weird how, like, um, the girls, the ladies, how they, how they wear all these, like, it's like all legs. Is that like... Is that kind of wrong to make them do that? No, they don't. They're not made to do that. They get to wear whatever they want they to wear. But how come I never said? I am yeah. not complaining. Trust me. But <laughs> I was a- like, because I was thinking maybe because every girl like his legs are just like look like baby oil from like just glass legs. I'm like, damn. I'm sitting there watching sports, but I'm like, 
Dude got on a suit and this girl legs are just shining. Plus what am I supposed to wear pantsuits? <laughs> I mean, if that's their choice, I'm happy. But right. I just I just want it to be no, it's no, their it's no choice. Net, it's no network director that said, hey, you have to have on this particular that outfit. That was my no, question. Nobody ever told me, you know, what to wear. And uh, you know, I, I showed some thigh meat from time you to time. You did, you did. I mean, you kind of kept it calm. You kind of yeah. kept a little bit, but some girls just be, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm not definitely not complaining. I'm like, what's her name? Um Kind of brown. She has, she has her own show. It comes on. It's probably the third show of the day. I forget her name. Yeah, I think you might be talking about my girl Carrie. Carrie, I'm <laughs> huge fan. Okay, huge fan. Huge Carrie friend. just kills me. Well, I can I can as her friend, I can testify. Carrie indeed does. She uses cocoa butter oil. I knew it. <laughs> I knew does. it. I knew I'm it. Sorry, Carrie. Bam. I let everybody know. I knew it. Raphael Sadiq now has the secret. I knew, she, I knew it was cocoa. I knew she it. She uses cocoa butter oil. Oh, that's got to be cocoa butter. Because it's lights and it's TV and you know you don't want to be ashy on TV. She is sure. nowhere near ashy. <laughs> I saw her at, uh, at KD's um, YouTube. Uh, oh, the the commercial she did. Yeah, yes. she was there and I and I walked past her and I was like I was looking at her and I was like, you check to see the cocoa butter. Oh Lord, this is I can't wait. When she hears this, she's gonna lose her mind. <laughs> I couldn't see her legs though because she was behind something. Right. So you know, I didn't want to you know just keep looking down, think all that Me Too stuff was happening. So I just kind of just <laughs> no, just Co- cocoa butter oil. It's that, cocoa butter. That okay. is that's the right, secret. Girl, well, right. <laughs> look, thank you so thank much you. for joining. So me. nice to see you doing your Same thing. I love here, it. I'm such a huge fan of yours. I appreciate that. Word. Huge fan here as well. And. Um, I can't wait for this uh, new album, August, August, August 23rd, August 23rd. Jimmy Lee. Y'all check it out. All right. I'll be back. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered is next. So at the time of this podcast, it's been Just about a day since the announcement was made that the NFL is partnering with Jay-Z and Rock Nation. Now, the league is basically putting Jay-Z and Rock Nation in charge of selecting musicians for the NFL's biggest events, including the Super Bowl, which, as we all know, was dry as fuck this past Super Bowl. No disrespect to Adam Levine and Travis Scott. There's also a social justice element to this deal where Jay-Z is supposed to amplify the league's social justice efforts. Now, I wrote about this problematic alliance for The Atlantic, so I don't want to rehash my entire opinion. But if you follow me on Twitter, at Jamel Hill, by the way, or if you've read my column in The Atlantic, y'all know I am mad skeptical about this collaboration. For now, it looks like the NFL is getting way more out of this than Jay-Z is. I also think this is kind of a slap in the face to Colin Kaepernick, who still doesn't have a job in the NFL. And I admit that I was kind of disappointed that Jay-Z didn't at least talk to Colin Kaepernick about this endeavor until after the deal was already done. Now, when Jay spoke about this partnership at his press conference, he said he felt it was time to move on from the kneeling. And I do understand that Uh, Jay-Z is trying to turn the page. He's trying to turn this movement into something tangible. But for me, this plays right into the NFL's hands. They want to try to absolve themselves of killing Colin Kaepernick's career because he stood up for equality. They also want access to black talent, influencers. So they struck a deal with Jay-Z. Now, I'm not feeling this for a lot of reasons. As I said, Uh, for one, the NFL cannot be trusted And it's hard for me to take their sudden interest in social justice causes seriously when they have blackballed Colin Kaepernick um, for protesting against police brutality, racial injustice. 
imagine that gets you kicked out of the NFL. Nevertheless, that is not what I am bothered about. I'm bothered that I apparently missed the memo that said Jay-Z is above what I consider to be very fair criticism. I'm bothered that I have to qualify every statement I make about this topic by stating the fucking obvious about Jay-Z. The obvious being, of course, he is one of the most powerful people in entertainment. He's the most successful rapper of all time. He's an icon in our community because he champions not just black people, but blackness. I don't question Jay-Z's commitment to black people. I am not calling him a sellout. I didn't in the column and no one has heard me say that. But black people, we got to get to a space where we aren't so overly protective of high profile black folks that we can't even engage in fair criticism when they make questionable moves without everybody having a fucking meltdown. I don't hate Jay-Z. I'm not calling for anybody to delete his albums from their phone. I'm not telling y'all to drop title. I'm not telling y'all to pour out all your do say. I'm not trying to bring a black man down, okay? I just disagree with how he handled this. And it's okay because he would disagree with my disagreement. Listen closely. Healthy debate is okay. Critical thinking is welcome. And so is being unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 